It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Some serious security issues with the XM email server. We're going to talk about a big infrastructure problem, the Colonial Pipeline hit by ransomware. What's it mean for infrastructure in general? And then Steve's got a picture of the week that's actually, I think it's a IQ test. It's all coming up next. You'll pass on security now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 818. Recorded Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. News from the dark side. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tool slash twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. And by Bandwidth, a cloud-native carrier with a global network offering SIP trunking, toll-free E911 and messaging services, centralized telecom services, and successfully migrate communications to the cloud with the telecom power behind the majority of Gartner's UCAS and CCAS Magic Quadrant leaders. Learn more at bandwidth.com slash security now. And by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or try it for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now with this fellow right here. We call him James Tiberius Gibson. (laughs) <laughs> the captain of the good ship <laughs> security now. Steve Gibson is here. Hi, Steve. Yo, Leo. What's up? Once again, well, uh, you know, I did not want to talk about Dark Side, but there was no way not to. There was no way not to not yeah. to talk about Dark yeah. Side. Yeah. And what was interesting, you know, because like how long, how much time have I spent promising our listeners that you know we wouldn't keep talking about ransomware, but. When this thing moves from, you know, an incidental concern about from like IT people to something that, you know, where our parents or grandparents or like, you know, those who are, you know, predate the Internet are like, uh, what? Ransomware? What's that? I mean, and when it steps out to dramatically affect our infrastructure. Oh, and this group has a, like a weird twist also. Like they have an ethics page posted on their site on the on the dark web about, uh, you know, their intentions. Anyway, we'll get to that. There, there was enough interest about this you know like enough insider information that our listeners would not have picked up from the mainstream media that i thought okay we got to talk about that but this is episode 818 for uh patch tuesday uh, of may which we'll be talking about next week because you know we have to wait to see what happens um we're going to look at a new and old threat to our global DNS infrastructure. We also ask what the heck Google is planning with their so-called two-step verification. We examine a huge new problem with the Internet's majority of email servers. You know, Microsoft Exchange, that was March. 
and they're by no means the the biggest player. It turns out that the biggest player, Exum, has some like really bad problems. So buckle up. Uh, we're also going to look at the reality of Tor exit node insecurity, Leo, and really substantiate the statements you've been making when you're talking about uh, our VPN sponsors that, you know, that's a like, – just using Tor doesn't do the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're also going to touch on a new sci-fi novel from a very well-known author, uh, share a bit of closing-the-loop feedback from our listeners, and then we're going to settle down and take a look at this arguably the highest profile ransomware attack ever from what was previously a low-key attacker. We've never talked about Darkseid before. You know, we're talking about Ryuk and all these other guys. Uh, and and this player is sort of interesting. So, oh, and for those listeners who haven't, well, actually, you and I, all of our conversation about our picture of the week was before you hit the record button. We have a picture that we're not going to explain and we will explain why. It's an IQ test. Actually, it's not. It's a test of your educational levels, maybe. I don't know. I don't think it's an intelligence test, but it is a test. So we'll, we'll, we'll have that in a moment. Um, but first, a word from our sponsor. This is a test. Are you sure there's no one on your network right now? Snooping around, exfiltrating information, getting ready to encrypt everything with ransomware i'm sure that's what the colonial pipeline guys thought too <laughs> they needed this they needed the things to canary the last thing anyone wants right now is a data breach exfiltration uh, it said that the pipeline folks uh, 100 gigabytes of data was uh, exfiltrated yep. and then yep. encrypted yep um rather than the villain lying in a wait i'm going to suggest there is a hero in this story, or there will be in your story, if you know about the Thinkst Canary. Thinkst Canary. Companies usually find out way too late they've been compromised. Even if they've spent millions on IT security, um, it's just not enough. Because, as you know, security is a layered thing. No one thing will fix everything. But, man, you got to have the canary. you just got to. And there's no reason not to. It's affordable. It's basically a honeypot that's easy to configure, easy to install, and is irresistible to bad guys. So when they're going around looking for stuff to exfiltrate, servers to log into, they'll see the canary. And it won't look vulnerable. It'll look valuable. For instance, I've configured my canary to look like my Synology NAS. Because I know the NAS, I know the login, I know exactly what it looks like. It got down to the MAC address. It has an official MAC address that would, is identical to a Synology MAC address. You can say what the MAC address is. You can choose what it is. You could choose the user interface. And when the bad guy sees that Synology user interface and logs in, you get a notification. You don't get overwhelmed by millions of notifications. You just get very concise, actionable notifications that include, by the way, the log in and the password they use, which is valuable information and understanding what they know and what already, right? The Canary has completely changed the game. It is designed to be installed and configured in minutes. And then, if you'll forgive the pun, left to its own devices. You don't have to think about it. In fact, if you don't hear anything from the Canary, you can feel good. Life is good. But when the attackers are on your network and they're prowling along around looking for juicy content, for instance, they'll browse Active Directory for file servers and 
explore file shares looking for documents. They'll try default passwords against network devices and web services. They'll scan for open services across the network. Canaries will let you know when they do any of that. They can be deployed throughout your entire network. You can see this one has just got a power connection and an Ethernet connection, and it's on the network. You can make it look not just like a NAS. You can make it look like a router, a switch, a Linux box, a Windows server. You can make it look like a SCADA device. It actually has that as one of the things you can make it look like. So attackers won't even know they've been caught. They'll just know that the password they tried didn't work, which they're used to. But meanwhile, you'll get an actionable notification that will tell you there's somebody in there prowling around. Things canaries are designed to look like the things hackers want. And the reason they are is because the guys who designed the canary have been in this game for 20 years plus. They've trained companies, militaries, and governments about how to break into networks. And they took all the knowledge they've got about that to make something the hackers just really don't want you to know about. <laughs> the things canary. They're deployed all over the world on all seven continents. They're really one of the most important tools against data breaches. You can put fake files on them. You can enroll them in Active Directory. They even generate something called Canary Tokens. Steve and I talked about this some years ago when we first found out about this. The Canary Tokens cool. It's a file, a PDF, a document, an Excel, Excel file. Well, that's what it looks like to the bad guy. But if they open it, boom, immediately you get a notification. They're tripwires. Hackers, get, they're, it's so awesome. Everything I think does is is designed around their philosophy of trivial to deploy with a ridiculously high quality of signal. And you can choose how that alert happens. Uh, it can be an email. It can be a text message. You'll get a console when you, when you get your canaries. Uh, that's all yours. You can also use Slack. It supports webhooks, so you could have it, this and that or anything. Zapier. Syslog. A lot of people just, you know, keep their syslog, you know, running all the time, tailing it all the time just to see what's going on. You can see it there. Uh, there's even an API, so you could write your own custom interface. You just choose whatever works best for you. It's important, though. Companies know two things when it comes to data breaches. One, hackers take the path of least resistance. That's typically your staff. And two, and this is the bad news, on average, it takes 191 days for a company to discover there's been a data breach. It took uh, the Starwood Group two years, right? No, five years, a long time. Uh, Sony took them eight months. You know, you don't want to be the one that gets the mail. Hey, boss, the server's down. Everything's encrypted. And by the way, they've exfiltrated all the movies. <laughs> Canary's got the solution. They got them all and the scripts and uh, how much we paid Aaron Sorkin for us. You don't want that. Mm -mm. Visit canary.tools for the things to canary. Actually, go, if you would, do this for us so that they know you saw it on Security Now. Canary.tools slash twit. They love advertising, Steve, on Security Now because they know that this is the audience that will get what this is. We've talked about honeypots many times. It was one of our, one of our first shows. And that they will understand how, the, how valuable this can be. I'll give you a pricing example. I mean, some people have just a handful of canaries. Some people have thousands. Depends on the size of your network and so forth. But if you wanted, say, five... Uh, it would cost $7,500 a year. You get that hosted console I mentioned. You also get upgrades, support, and maintenance. In fact, if you sit on your canary, you destroy it, you hit it with a hammer, whatever, no questions asked, they just send you a new one. And, oh, by the way, use TWIT as the offer code uh, in the How Did You Hear About Us box, too, because then they're going to give you 10% off, not only for when you first buy it, but for as long as you use them for life. We know you're going to love the Thinks Canary, but if for any reason it doesn't suit, don't worry. You've got a two-month money-back guarantee, full refund. 
they know this is exactly what you need. They're not worried. They know you're, you're going to want it. You're going to buy more probably. Canary.tools slash twit. All you have to do for me is use the offer code twit in the how did you hear about us box. And uh, I think you're going to love it. Canary.tools slash twit. All right, Steve, are you ready for the IQ test? So <laughs> the bad news is nothing we could say. Like, I can't even describe this, because if I were to describe it, I would, I, I'm, I fear that I would say something that would provide a clue. So, I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, the, everyone knows where the show notes are. You can get them at grc.com slash sn or uh, slash security now. Or if you're watching the um, video, you're seeing it. But yeah, for our or, audio yes. listeners, we don't want to describe yes, yes. it. Yeah. Yes. So we don't want to and if, if you're watching it, it's on screen right now. Um, it's just fun. It is a, a two-frame cartoon, uh, very clever, and you'll enjoy the fact that you get it. And just you'll check probably the poll. Be, an, be annoyed if you don't. In our Discord right now, uh, we're asking, do you get the picture of the week? Uh, do you, In other words, do you get the joke? Because it's a joke. 16 do, 9 do not. And it's got to be frustrating for those who don't. Because it's yeah. just not obvious. Yeah. Uh, unless it is. It's one of those things. <laughs> yep. If you know, you know. <laughs> and for what it's worth, it's well done. I mean, that it's just... Oh, yeah, they get it all right. Yeah, I know exactly. what you're talking about. Yep, yep, exactly. Yep. It, was, it was done correctly. So <laughs> we'll just leave that as a puzzle for the listeners. And We'll uh, tell you next week. How about that? And Oh, I like that. Very good. Yeah. You got one week before the spoiler hits. So uh, you know, see if you can take a look at the picture and test yourself. Okay, so... Um, the best name, uh, the best, the best name, the best thing about this flaw is, I think, its name. Uh, the flaw is T S U capital N A M E. Uh, you know, obviously meant to be tsunami. So, with a little bit of fudging of the spelling, um, because it's about name servers. So, tsunami or T S U N A M E. Um, uh, and this is one of those clickbaity stories, um, but it's still interesting and I think educational. When I first encountered the industry's coverage of this with its portents of doom, uh, I thought that you know some new nightmare must have found uh, or have been found with DNS. You know, just when we needed, <clears throat> just when we needed Kevin the most. But when I dug into the story, I learned that it boils down to an interesting way for a domain's DNS records to be misconfigured such that when a naive, and I'll explain what I mean by that, a naive recursive DNS resolver is asked to resolve one of these misconfigured domains, that recursive server serving as a as a DNS resolver will get itself into a name resolution loop which causes it to pound away on that domain's authoritative DNS servers without end. Um, and it turns out there's a way to put DNS into an infinite name resolving loop. Now, if this had never occurred to anyone since man walked the earth, it might be somewhat more alarming. But not surprisingly, 
This had previously occurred to the guys who built DNS. RFC 1536, yes, four digits, you know, it's an oldie, 1536, published way back in October of 1993, was titled Common DNS Implementation Errors and Suggested Fixes. So, yeah, things can go wrong and how to fix them. Section 2 of that RFC, 1536, bears the title Recursion Bugs. And after a bit of shortening for the podcast, it reads, When a server receives a client request, it first looks up its zone data locally and in its cache to check if the query can be answered. If the answer is unavailable from either location, the server seeks names of servers that are more likely to have the information in their caches or zone data. The server chains this request to these known servers closest to the queried name. This process repeats until the client is satisfied. Servers might also go through this chaining process if the server returns a CNAME record. We've talked about that, the canonical name record, which is, you know, an alias, for the queried name. Some servers reprocess this name to try to get the desired record type. However, in certain cases, this chain of events may not be good, (laughs) is what they wrote in 1993, may not be good. For example, a broken or malicious name server might list itself as one of the name servers to query again. The unsuspecting client resends the same query to the same server. In another situation, they wrote, more difficult to detect, a set of servers might form a loop wherein A refers to B and B refers back to A. This loop might involve more than two servers. Okay, so with that bit of background, here's what the guys who reminded us what was written 28 years ago said uh, in their published papers, uh, opening abstract. They said, the Internet's domain name system is one of the core services on the Internet. Every website visit requires a series of DNS queries, and large DNS failures may have cascading consequences leading to unreachability of major websites and services. Okay, that we all know. They said in this paper, we present Tsunami, a vulnerability in some DNS resolvers that can be exploited to carry out denial-of-service attacks against authoritative servers. Tsunami occurs when domain names are misconfigured with cyclic or cyclic dependent DNS records and when vulnerable resolvers access these misconfigurations they begin looping and send DNS queries rapidly to authoritative servers and other resolvers and they said we observe up to 5600 queries per second They said using production data from the .nz, the top level, the the country code top level domain of New Zealand, we show 
how only two misconfigured domains led to a 50% increase in overall traffic volume for the .nz's authoritative servers. To understand this event, we reproduce Tsunami using our own configuration, demonstrating that it could be used to overwhelm any DNS zone. A solution to Tsunami requires changes to some recursive resolver software to include loop detection and caching cyclic dependency records. To reduce the impact of Tsunami in the wild, we have developed and released Cycle Hunter, an open source tool that allows for authoritative DNS server operators to detect cyclic dependencies and prevent becoming victims of tsunami attacks themselves. And they conclude with the abstract, we used Cycle Hunter to evaluate roughly 184 million domain names in seven large top-level, you know, TLD, top-level domains, and discovered 44 cyclic-dependent name server records, likely from configuration errors, used by 1,400 domain names. A well-motivated adversary could easily weaponize this vulnerability. We've notified Resolver developers and many TLD operators of this vulnerability, working together with Google and actually also with Cisco. I'll get to that in a second. They said we helped them to mitigate their vulnerability to Tsunami. So later in the paper, they discuss their use of this Cycle Hunter tool and show that they found a total of 3,696 DNS resolvers, which were not protecting their queries from this cyclic DNS misconfiguration. They manually tested the DNS resolvers uh, unbound, bind, not, it's spelled K-N-O-T, not DNS, which is DNS, quad nine and quad one. All of those passed, but Cisco's OpenDNS and Google's DNS both got themselves caught in cyclic lookup loops. They informed both companies and both fixed their problems quickly. As, you know, it's an internal thing. I don't know if Cisco's OpenDNS, I mean, presumably they make that available to people, whereas, you know, Google's DNS is a service of, of Google, so they would have fixed that in-house. Anyway, uh, and interestingly, DNS developers, it turns out, do need to always be, and generally are, on the lookout for DNS looping errors. They note that the change log for the unbound DNS resolver contains 28 entries related to looping. So it's something that, you know, DNS, anyone doing recursive DNS needs to clearly make sense or make sure that they don't get themselves, you know, like chasing their tail endlessly. Um, It's 
given the numbers, it seems unlikely that this would have happened. But but somewhere in their report, I read the whole thing. They they noted that while they were observing some range of domains, one new problem appeared. Like a, a, like somebody brought up some new zone records and apparently just made a mistake. And sure enough, a new recursion problem occurred. So this is happening from time to time. Um, as long as resolvers don't chase their tail endlessly, but realize, wait a minute, I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I'm caching my lookups and I've just been asked to look up the same thing I was asked a moment ago. Uh, I'm in a loop. And so this is a, you know this this is the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, I'm not going to proceed any further. Um, in which case, these you know uh, occasional lookup problems they'll probably get found because lookups will will be broken uh, if they recurse and never complete. But certainly DNS you know anyone operating a DNS server wants to make sure they don't have one which is just going to sit around, you know, I mean, you're using up your own local network bandwidth when you are making, you know, 5,600 queries per second to, you know, other servers out on the Internet. So that's not something that you want to have happen. So what this all boils down to is that two of the industry's many DNS server families were failing to detect DNS lookup loops. And sure enough, there were a few definitions out there that would cause those servers to become stuck. Um, what the, you know, the benefit of this research is that uh, it identified those servers and got them patched, and they did develop a this cycle hunter tool of theirs to allow administrators of DNS to check up on their own DNS zone definitions for any uh, cyclic lookup trouble. Uh, it's a tsunami, T-S-U-N-A-M-E dot I-O. Uh, you can go there and uh, they have the, the full tech report for anyone who wants it and also a pointer to their uh, freely available tool, Cycle Hunter, to allow people to make sure that they're not stuck uh, and they don't have a, like a, a misconfigured DNS that could be loading down their servers without them knowing. Okay, so <laughs> I labeled this one, huh, Google? Um, last Thursday, Google's Mark... Risher, R-I-S-H-E-R, their director of product management for identity and user security, posted to the Google blog under the safety and security section uh, an entry titled, quote, a simpler and safer future without passwords. Okay, now, unfortunately, that's not what his blog post addressed. And no one seems to be exactly sure uh, what his blog was trying to say and what it did address, since it led to many confusing and misleading tech press headlines. I saw a headline, Google wants to enable multi-factor authentication by default, and Another headline, Google is turning on two-factor authentication by default. And and another one, Google will start automatically enrolling users in two-step verification soon. Uh, Okay. So, uh, and 
on top of that, I saw many users who read this to mean that Google would be requiring the use of two-factor authentication. And I can certainly see how one might get that, you know, like come away with that feeling from the confused headlines. It's also not helpful that Google has apparently decided to create a new term and and abbreviation. You know, everyone already knows what two-factor authentication is. In fact, the headlines, generally two of the three used that, even though Google didn't, because that's what we call it. We call it two-factor authentication, typically abbreviated 2FA. But now we have Google's 2SV, which is what they're using it, which is two-step verification. Okay, but if you first put in your email address, then you put in your password, then you're asked to do something else. Aren't we already up to three steps of verification? <laughs> That's a good point. They just don't want to act, they don't want to act like it's two factors, right? <laughs> they just want to uh, say it's another step, right? Yeah, okay. But if you need to go get your phone, arrange to unlock it with your identity, then respond to a prompt or text message or a one-time password, we're up to about six or seven steps by that point. You know, I, I've lost count. Anyway, uh, so I read through Mark uh, Reicher's blog posting, uh, and here's the problematic paragraph that no one is quite sure how to interpret. He wrote, Today, we ask people who have enrolled in two-step verification, okay, 2SV, to confirm it's really them with a simple tap via a Google prompt on their phone whenever they sign in. Here it comes. Soon, we'll start automatically enrolling users in 2SV if their accounts are appropriately configured. Uh, what? <laughs> so, I have no idea what he means when he says, we'll start automatically enrolling users in two-step verification if their accounts are appropriately configured. What does appropriately configured mean? Yeah, I wish they were clearer on this. I mean, they they in their minds know what that means, but they haven't told us. Yes, and and you're reading my mind, Leo, uh, because in the show notes I wrote, and that's the problem. It apparently means something to Mark, but it's gobbledygook to the millions of people who read Google's blogs and also apparently to the tech press, which tried to write news stories around it. Okay, now, as we all know, you either have second-factor authentication enabled for authentication to your Google account, as I do, or you don't. There's no third setting labeled, well, I'm open to the idea, hit me up when you want. You know, we don't have that. So the only thing I can figure is that, I don't know, Mark woke up last Thursday and his calendar told him that it was World Password Day as indeed it was. So he thought, oh, crap, that's right. I'm director of product management for identity and security. I better think of something to say. So he banged out that confusing blog post to the world. You know, I, I think what we need to take away from his aberrant posting is that Google is a fan of using more than just our email address and password for authentication. You know, we know that's true. 
uh, and that in the interests of their users, they plan to arrange to somehow encourage more of their users to add a second factor, or as they put it, another step to their logons. But as you know, as for what Mark wrote last Thursday to celebrate World Password Day, I have no idea what he could possibly mean by automatic enrollment in 2SV, you know, two-step verification, nor does anyone else at this point, you know, and maybe they don't know. uh, But, you know, looking at just what a mess this caused out in the press, if they thought that removing FTP support from Chrome might cause a ruckus, just watch what happens if they start surprising their users with the presumably unwanted additional complexity of two-step verification, which sounds like it's more like six or seven steps. Um, you know, I guess we're going to find out. And, you know, and Leo, thinking about this further, you know, they do have they've they've authorized Android phones to get involved in a simple authentication cycle, yeah, I right? think they have the sing- – that's what they're talking, talking about, a single sign. Think- it works on an Apple phone too, by the way, if you have the Google app on your Apple phone. And right. that may be what they're thinking. And that's what Microsoft uses that, the single sign-on, which is great. I love it. So, so would they be aware of it for users and – but like see that a user has the app and then say, hey yeah. – Happen to know exactly. you're an Android person, yeah. so you can do this. They wouldn't even say that. They just would start using it. Uh, and Really? Yeah, but oh, if you oh, didn't have the app, the it wouldn't app- mean anything. So you'll get a notification on your phone, and so it'll say, click OK on your phone. I've seen actually this happen. Uh, I mean, it happens to me all the time with Google. It but says, if you're on your desktop logging in? Yeah, it says, click then- OK on your phone. Oh, OK. And then, and then if that doesn't work, it says, try another way. You know, they give you it's it's not like a but I think honestly it's that's yeah. maybe why he calls it two step because it isn't in fact it's one step because I mean it's it's <laughs> one it's factor. Two steps back. Two well steps no, I like single sign on, but <laughs> with Microsoft for instance, when you sign on to Windows, instead of saying what's your password, it says what's your you know, you put your Microsoft account uh, email in there. Right. And then it says, Okay, Here's th- here's uh, look on your phone for the number eighty and tap it, and I think it's a far preferable way. There's no password at all, and I sus- and that's kind of what Google does with their single sign on. And I've seen this happen with single sign on. I suspect that's what he's talking about. But the problem is he, he it isn't clear at all what he's talking about. No, and no, nor did he like in any no nowhere did he talk about the end of passwords. He just you know said we're going to add steps. So, it's but like, that's what okay. single sign-on in effect does. You know, you don't enter your Microsoft password now when you first set up Windows. You just, if you, but you have to have the Authenticator app on your phone, and Microsoft knows that you do and knows that you've used it. Same, similarly, Google would have to know that you have that capability. Yeah, and you're right. On a Pixel phone, you don't need an app. On an iPhone, you need the Google app. And then I, yeah. pr- I love it because then I just, you know, tap OK on my phone. And well, Leo, I, I worked on something called Squirrel for quite a while. Yeah, it's kind so of I'm, squirrelish. I'm well yeah. aware of the yeah. <laughs> benefits, yeah. yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, let's take a break. I'm going to sip some water, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, 21 nails in Exim's coffin. We will continue in a moment, but first a word 
about bandwidth. Actually, it's not really about bandwidth. Bandwidth, of course, we all know what bandwidth is, but bandwidth, the company, is a carrier. It's the first digital native carrier. And uh, if you are looking at putting in SIP and you want a cloud native carrier with SIP trunking, toll free numbers, E911, and messaging services, you need to look at bandwidth. Bandwidth provides communication services built for innovative enterprises. Companies like, oh, I don't know, Google? Yeah, they use bandwidth. Uh, Zoom uses bandwidth. Uh, actually, Ring Central, our, our, our phone provider, turns out they're running on bandwidth. Bandwidth, and I'm happy about that. SIP and emergency services infused with the power of software create smoother migrations and more innovation-ready platform for your cloud future. You can centralize SIP with bandwidth, a true cloud-native carrier. You know, that's something you can't really say about a lot of carriers, a lot of Celex out there. Years of organic growth, mergers, and acquisitions have resulted in a, let's be generous, complex tapestry of legacy infrastructure, which only makes getting to these new cloud platforms more complicated. Centralizing SIP with a trusted partner is a crucial first step. Bandwidth's software-driven approach to SIP empowers enterprises with an unmatched level of control and visibility that includes things like you'll want, like triggered or scheduled porting, real-time number ordering and provisioning, as well as call control features like failover, call forwarding, and real-time reroutes. Something a cloud-native carrier says we got to provide, has it built in, has it working from day one, that's why you want to go with bandwidth. And by the way, it really solves for E911. Capturing precise location information at call time is critical not just for your organization, but the safety of your employees. And if you're converting PRI lines and centralizing SIP, you could be really at jeopardy with accessing accurate location information and maintaining compliance with emergency regulations. Ray Baum's app, for instance, requires that you not merely provide an address, but because office buildings have many floors and many suites, provide a floor number, a suite number, so that the emergency services can get to you in times of need. That's important. Managing these evolving regulatory requirements, multiple offices, nomadic workers, that's another big problem, with bandwidth emergency services built for a modern and mobile workforce, you don't have to worry about that. Protect your enterprise, protect your employees, really. That's the most important thing. With precise location information, you can easily add or change address information. An employee starts working from home. It's easy to fix that. Starts coming back to the office. Easy to fix that. And you can access a variety of options, both static and advanced or even dynamic E911 options. You'll be working with a network operator who is, well, again, again, I want to put this diplomatically, easier to work with than some of those other guys. Everyone says they have great support, but bandwidth really has it. A 98% CSAT score and consistent SLA attainment by their support teams, bandwidth has unmatched industry support. And every customer gets it. A named implementation specialist to usher you through a tailored migration plan. A dedicated team of porting experts so you have easy migration experience. You will know this immediately. It's such a relief when you talk to them. I remember <laughs> I've had such bad experiences with the legacy telcos. I could go on and on. I won't, I won't, I won't diss them, but... Sometimes it's flabbergasting. With bandwidth, it's just a breath of fresh air. It's just so nice. 
It's so nice. Uh, you'll get a dedicated uh, support personnel and industry experts to manage your needs as you scale over time. 24-7 network monitoring assurance by their in-house knock. Clear, always available escalation paths. Customer-driven prioritization of support tickets. Yeah, you say how important it is, not them. That's nice, right? It's just the little things. I mentioned Zoom. I mentioned uh, Ring Central. Google uses bandwidth. Genesis uses bandwidth. They all use bandwidth. And if you're using Teams, you should take a look at Bandwidth's Duet for Microsoft Teams. That's for enterprises that are looking at migrating their telecom to Microsoft Teams. Why not, right? Well, if you're going to do it, do it with, with Bandwidth Duet. It's the only comprehensive solution for direct routing and Microsoft certified E911 available direct from a cloud-native carrier. Simplify your Teams migration. You'll save an average of 40% compared to the Microsoft calling plans. As the telecom power behind the majority of Gartner's UCAS and CCAS Magic Quadrant leaders, Bandwidth is best positioned to help your enterprise centralize telecom services and successfully migrate communications to these cloud platforms. Learn more at bandwidth.com slash security now. These guys are great. And, you know, because we use Ring Central, we've been using them for years. And Google and Zoom. <clears throat> Bandwidth.com slash security now time for the best right bandwidth.com slash security now speaking of the best let's get back to mr gibson i just i can't believe that domain name bandwidth.com bandwidth. when do you think do you they got that, that? <laughs> oh but actually in goodness. a way that's that's because you that's how you know they've been doing this since the beginning right uh, yeah 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 they, they they've been they've been there since the very beginning as have you mr g <laughs> Yes, and I have the lack of hair to improve it. <laughs> um, so, Tor's exit nodes. Um, since 2015, a Tor network researcher who goes by the moniker, I guess it's uh, Nusenu, N-U-S-E-N-U. I, I googled that, thinking maybe that was a term or something that I'd never heard of before, as you know, sometimes is the case. No, there was... <laughs> no reference to Nusenu except this guy, N-U-S-E-N-U. Anyway, whoever he is, Nusenu, has been tracking the deliberate abuse of the Tor network by quite determined and lately quite increasingly determined attackers. And of course, as our listeners know, through the years, the uh, Twit network has enjoyed the sponsorship of various high-quality VPN providers, uh, as it does at the moment. And in talking about the various benefits and reasons to use a VPN, uh, you, Leo, often cite the dangers inherent in Tor exit nodes. Once everybody hears what this researcher has been tracking, I doubt that anyone will or should feel comfortable using Tor without added protection. I seem to remember the NSA, or was it the CIA, ran some tour exit notes. So, uh, you know, just keep that in mind, I guess, uh, as you listen to this. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so because this was fascinating to me, and, you know, we've talked about Tor a lot. Tor is a cool concept. You know, it used to be the onion router, T-O-R, and the idea was that that you would... You, the user, would choose a series of Tor nodes, typically three. You know, the the one, the first one you connect to, then one in the middle, and then an exit node at the end. And 
from each of those nodes, you would obtain their public key. You would then use the first node's uh, public key to encrypt your traffic. And after that, that you would take that, that, that first encrypted traffic and you would use the Oh wait, I got it backwards. You you'd you'd first use the last node's public key to encrypt your traffic. Then you would use to that you would then use the the middle node's public key to encrypt that sort of like shells of an onion. And then you would use the first node's public key for the final encryption. So what you've got now is this triple encrypted thing uh think of it like you know like a like an onion with successive layers so now you send this to the first node it's been encrypted with its public key so it has the matching private key that it uses to take the encryption wrapper off and of course the reason you do this is that nothing that went between you and that first node can be seen by anybody your isp and so forth because it's been encrypted so that node that first node is able to take off the outer wrapper now it's looking at a a thing with two layers of encryption it doesn't know how to take off another layer because that sec that the layer that it's now got on the outer surface was encrypted using the middle tor nodes public key. So all it can do is send it on to the middle Tor node. So it does that. Middle Tor node knows its private key. So it can take off the wrapper that nobody else can take off, which it does, which gives it the address of the of the exit node, but it, it can't go any further because it doesn't have the exit node's public key. So it sends it to the exit node. The exit node does have its private key that matches the public key that you originally got. So it's able to remove the final innermost wrapper of encryption. And now your, your the, the thing you wanted to send through this Tor network is back in plain text and out it goes onto the Internet. And that's the problem, is that that exit node that removed the final layer of encryption has decrypted fully after three, you know, bounces, the original plain text that you put onto the Tor network, what is it doing with it? Okay, so uh, uh, he's been tracking abuses of Tor exit nodes. Um, two days ago, this is why it popped up on my radar, uh, he posted his most recent update to his earlier work, which began in August of 2020, titled Tracking One Year of Malicious Tor Exit Relay Activities, Part 2. <clears throat> and in his posting on Medium two days ago, Nusenu, N-U-S-E-N-U, maybe that's his name, I don't know. Anyway, he says, in August of 2020, I reported about, quote, how malicious Tor relays are exploiting users in 2020. That was part one. He said, back then, I made the hypothesis that the entity behind these malicious Tor relays and, okay, just to get everyone's attention, as many as one quarter of all Tor exit nodes are malicious. 
Okay? So, you know, not a couple, but your chances of hitting one are high, especially because you typically rotate among different nodes as you go. So the opportunity of exiting, of your traffic exiting from a malicious node, depending upon when you're using Tor, is as high as 25%, and it rises as you use it over the course of, of its use. So... Anyway, my point is, this is a big deal. So he says, he made the hypothesis that the, that the entity behind these malicious Tor relays is not going to stop its activities anytime soon. He said, unfortunately, this turned out to be true. In this follow-up post of his earlier, and by the way, in the show notes, I have all three links, his very first one, this middle one, and then yes, uh, uh, the one from two days ago. He says, I will give you an update, share what additional information we learned about the attacker since August 2020, and to what extent they were and still are active on the Tor network. Okay, so... Again, but before I go any further, I'll share the extent of the trouble that Newsom Yu has uncovered. Um, in August 2020 posting, he explained, what is this attacker actually exploiting and how does it affect Tor users? He said the full extent of their operations is unknown, but one motivation appears to be plain and simple, profit. They perform person-in-the-middle attacks, and I guess we're no longer calling that man-in-the-middle. It's person-in-the-middle to be gender-neutral. Person-in-the-middle attacks on Tor users by maintaining, by, my, by, sorry, my, by manipulating traffic as it flows through their exit relays. As I said, the exit relay has it back in the clear. He said they selectively remove HTTP to HTTPS redirects to gain full access to plain unencrypted HTTP traffic without causing TLS certificate warnings. Okay, so of course we know all about this, right? You know, you you can't muck with TLS or you're going to break the authentication, which is protected by the, the the certificate, and you'll get bogus certificates. Also, it's encrypted if it's over SSL TLS, so so you really can't get get, get anything done. But if the initial traffic is HTTP, and the far site returns a redirect to HTTPS. What these guys are doing is they're saying, whoops, uh, nope, we're not going to have the the user moved over HTTPS. And we've spoken about this many times. GRC, GRC, for example, redirects anyone coming in over HTTP to HTTPS. It's not possible to access GRC without HTTPS, though it is possible to begin with HTTP and then be moved over to HTTPS to continue. And while web browsers all assumed HTTP, remember we've we've also talked about this, that's finally beginning to change. No idea what took them so long. Um, Until the assumption was being made this moving people from HTTP to HTTPS was a necessary step since ever everyone entering GR, just like by typing grc.com, 
would default to http colon slash slash grc.com. And, you know, I should note, uh, as our listeners will recall, GRC was among the first domains to be added to Chrome's permanent HSTS list, which Mozilla duplicates, and that explicitly gives Chrome and Firefox permission to always silently promote any and all HTTP queries to HTTPS, and it makes it quicker because it saves that round the HTTP to HTTPS redirect round trip and so forth. Anyway, Nusinu in his posting continues. He said, it is hard to detect for Tor, for Tor browser users that do not specifically look for the HTTPS colon slash slash in the URL bar. This is a well-known attack called SSL stripping that exploits the fact that users rarely type in the full domain starting with HTTPS colon slash slash. He says there are established countermeasures, namely HSTS preloading and HTTPS everywhere. But in practice, many website operators do not implement them and leave their users vulnerable to this kind of attack. He says this kind of attack is not specific to Tor browser. Malicious relays are just used to gain access to user traffic. To make detection harder, the malicious entity did not attack all websites equally. It appears that they're primarily after cryptocurrency-related websites, namely multiple Bitcoin mixer services, which we talked about last week. Uh, He says they replaced Bitcoin addresses in HTTP traffic to redirect transactions to their wallets instead of user-provided Bitcoin addresses. Bitcoin address rewriting attacks are not new, but the scale of their operations is. It is not possible to determine whether they engage in other types of attacks. He said, I've reached out to some of the known affected Bitcoin sites so they can mitigate this on a technical level using HSTS preloading. Someone else submitted HTTPS Everywhere rules for the known affected domains. And he notes that HTTPS Everywhere is installed by default in Tor browser. Unfortunately, he says, none of these sites had HSTS preloading enabled at the time. At least one affected Bitcoin website deployed HSTS preloading after learning about these events. Okay, so I have to say I am (laughs) astonished that any sort of Bitcoin transaction site might be lacking in such basic security awareness and provision. But since Bitcoin is unregulated, you know, it's user beware. And if this is the state of cryptocurrency security, I guess I'm less surprised that we keep hearing about this or that cryptocurrency exchange being hacked. Elsewhere, Nusinu notes that SSL stripping and person-in-the-middle attacks are only one of many potential problems with Tor's inadvertent hosting of malicious exit nodes. 
Uh, as an example, he considers the instances where a new remote vulnerability is discovered in Firefox and thus in the Tor version of Firefox. Running a large network of exit nodes would allow attackers to immediately reach back down their end node connection to exploit such newly discovered vulnerabilities before the Tor, the Tor user's browser had a chance to update. So, just how big is the problem? Uh, you know, is it a couple of nodes that users are likely to exit from? Well, as I said, no. The graph above in the show notes uh, shows just how big the problem is. Um, the graph's scale on the left is difficult to read, but the uppermost number is 26%. Newsom used caption for that graph reads, Figure 1, malicious Tor exit fraction measured in percent of the entire available Tor exit node capacity over time by this particular malicious entity between July of 2020 and last month, April of 2021. He said peak value. The attacker did manage approximately 27.5% of the Tor network's exit capacity on January 2nd of 2021. Uh, okay, so, uh, and it's interesting. The graph sort of shows a rising, uh, a rising percentage and a sudden drop. And then it'll rise again and drop. And then it'll rise again and drop. <laughs> and then it'll rise again. And, and in the case of of this mo- the largest and longest one it rose and it kind of, sort of slowed down and then dropped well okay what's happening is that the bad guys are being found the i mean there is there is active combating of malicious exit nodes by tor network administers uh sorry administrators but this is all sort of volunteer exit node right i mean we've talked about how you know anyone who wants to can can create a can like contribute to the tor network by by setting up their own exit node where they allow users traffic to come encrypted into their system get decrypted by this exit node that they run on their network and then out it goes onto the internet you know i don't want to run one but good samaritans do Turns off. It turns out that bad Samaritans do as well, um, and that because they are set up quickly, and due to the nature of the way they're set up, it is possible to track their their aggregation over time, which is what Newsom Yu has figured out how to do, and so. But what we see is a large population of malicious nodes build up. While they are active, as many as, actually more than, one out of four connections over Tor is exiting through a node controlled by malicious parties who are hoping you're going to do something without TLS encryption. And God help you if you do, because these are these these people are not working in your favor. He did also note, though, that they're not 
mucking with all traffic. They are being selective about what traffic they they mess with. And of course, that does make their detection more difficult. So, you know, <laughs> I guess that's good. So he 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 else, he um uh um he said uh uh that there's better than as a consequence of 27.5% better than a 1 in 4 uh probability which as i noted rises over time since exit nodes are being randomly chosen and rotated so the chance that a a user not using not using some form of encryption will have traffic exiting through a malicious node. Now, of course, it also de- it is dependent upon where in this weird sawtooth cycle of 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 malicious activity, gro- node activity growing and then being suddenly cut off, like where in that cycle you happen to be using the Tor network. Well, that matters too. Um, but it demonstrates that it you just can't take it at face value that the use of Tor is going to be secure. So the bottom line here is there's no free lunch. Tor provides, as we know, some valuable services, but it's not a panacea. Any user of Tor must assume, and by the way, it's gotten way worse in the last couple of years. This was not true when we first talked about the Tor network in the beginning. And even over the course of the last few years, while this guy Newson Yu has been tracking this, he is, although his tools are getting better, so maybe he's better at, at finding the problem, he's concluding that it is really getting worse and way worse in 2021 than it had been before. So any user of Tor should assume, must assume, that the exit nodes they're emerging from may be under the control of malicious entities who will take any and every opportunity to interfere with and subvert the user's traffic if they can. He wrote, We know about MITM proxy, SSL strip, Bitcoin address rewrites, and get this, download modification attacks. (laughs) But he said, It's not possible to rule out other types of attacks. Imagine an attacker runs 27% of the Tor's network exit capacity and a Firefox exploit affecting Tor browser gets published before all users got their auto-updates. And, wow, a download modification attack? Talk about chilling. You use Tor to go get something that you want to keep very private. That's the reason you're using Tor. But the website that offers whatever it is doesn't support HTTPS. And apparently there are a lot that still don't. Uh, Okay, you know, they just say, hey, we're not going to do that. Still, you want it badly. So you download it over Tor. Even if the site in question was 100% legitimate, who knows what you actually downloaded? HTTP offers zero authentication of the other end's identity. Um, It was noted that a Tor HTTPS-only browser would be one solution. And about that, Newsonu wrote, 
He said the HTTPS only mode, which might land in Tor browser based on Firefox 91 ESR, would be a strong protection. But there are still some certainties. There are still some certainties. I'm sorry, uncertainties with that as well. He says, as a Tor browser developer points out on a Tor mailing list, when Tor browser migrates to Firefox 91 ESR, he wrote, we will look at enabling HTTPS only mode for everyone, but there remains a significant concern that there are many sites that do not support HTTPS. He said, especially more region-specific sites. And the question of what messaging Tor browser should use in that case. In other words, unfortunately, it's still not practical to force HTTPS. Yet, arguably, it's not safe not to have HTTPS if you're using Tor without some other kind of protection. So... I think our takeaway here should be that Tor needs to be used with a full awareness of its inherent dangers uh, while it can significantly obscure its users' real-world location and identity. Many entities, both malicious and, Leo, as you noted, law-enforcing also, may be closely monitoring everything they can about a user's activities or about Tor's users' activities, um, uh, and even in some cases, if they're malicious, actively modifying and subverting any traffic that's available to them in the clear. So whenever using Tor, keep in mind the danger of HTTP and the real need for some other privacy and security-protecting tunnel, such as a trustworthy VPN. I, you know, at this point, knowing what I know, I wouldn't consider using Tor, you know, without the added protection of a VPN. I just, you know, I don't think you can. Hey, um, did you skip the XM story? Oh, my goodness. How did I? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, I don't, I mean, you might have a purpose because, you know, but I just thought i'd mention no okay thank you thank you thank you well it wasn't me the chat room and jason everybody else went hey Uh, hey what about our exim story you did tease it so i sure did and here it is so uh okay 21 nails are not gonna kill exim nothing will kill exim uh but it does mean that if you or your organization is using the extremely popular, and we'll talk about just how popular in a second, Exim email transfer agent, which is the default email transfer agent provided by many Linux distros, including Debian, to send and receive email, you will definitely want to be sure. I mean, like, this is one of those, okay, like, p- pause the podcast and go update got to be sure that you're running the most recently patched version. Two months ago in March, eSoft performed an internet-wide study, probably due to the Microsoft Exchange server debacle, studying the internet's email servers. They approximated that 660% of the publicly reachable mail servers on the internet 
were running Exim, 60%. So that obviously makes it, without any further computation, the most popular email server on the Internet, period. Unfortunately, Exim, E-X-I-M, is short for Experimental Internet Mailer. (laughs) And after 17 years of its presence on Git, it might be nice if today it was a bit less experimental. Um, In response to Qualys's most recent security research, which we'll get to in a minute, all of the most widely used Linuxes, CentOS, Red Hat Enterprise, SUSE, uh, have rolled out fixes. Debian's uh, old stable, which code name is Stretch, its stable code name is Buster, um, and it's still in development. Thus, SID versions they're all updated, but the unstable, which is code named Bullseye, remains vulnerable. The problem is that there are also hundreds of also-ran distributions, and it's, of course, up to each individual distribution to update their own packages and to then work to get those updated uh, and replaced online, you know, old instances uh, updated and online. So, okay, since most of, and of course, 21 nails is 21 vulnerabilities. Most of the 21 serious vulnerabilities Qualys uncovered date back to Exum's emergence 17 years ago in 2004. Okay, that is to say all versions of Exum on the Internet uh, are vulnerable. So we're back in the all-too-familiar position of having publicly known and remotely exploitable vulnerabilities in email software that may not be receiving regular maintenance. Um, and a great many Internet-connected appliances may be based upon a build of Linux with a publicly exposed email agent running Exum. <sighs> so what did Qualys find? The security researchers at Qualys dubbed their report 21 Nails, uh, because from a source code audit, they just, they just read the source. From a source code audit, they found 10 vulnerabilities that can be remotely exploited. And most of the entire 21 can be exploited either in Exum's default configuration or in what they said was a very common configuration. And as I mentioned before, most of them affect all versions of Exum all the way back 17 years to 2004. There are 11 local vulnerabilities. Uh, and I'll just give you a sense for that. Link attach, uh, link attack in Exum's log directory, assorted attacks in Exum's spool directory, arbitrary file creation and clobbering, arbitrary file deletion, heap buffer overflow in QRun, blah, blah, blah. Those are local, okay? So those are not remote. We're mostly worried about the remote ones because that's what's, you know, that's where the attacks are going to come from largely. So we have a in all versions of Exim, 60% of the servers on the Internet, right? Um, integer overflow in receive add recipient. Integer overflow in receive message. 
out-of-bounds read in SMTP setup message, new line injection into spool header file, heap out-of-bounds read and write in extract option, line truncation and injection in spool read header, failure to reset function pointer (laughs) after BDAT error, heap buffer overflow in SMTP unget C, Use after free in TLS OpenSSL.c and heap out of bounds in read in PDKIM finish body hash. Okay, so those all sound tricky and techy. Qualys has published a detailed write up. I've got the link in the show notes showing step by step code mistakes in the source and exploitation mechanisms, but they stopped short of working exploits. However, since Exum is open source and published under the GNU GPL, there's no point in attempting to obfuscate any of this, so we can expect to be seeing still more trouble downstream as remote attackers use any older and not just updated Exum instances as their means of gaining entry to internal enterprise and government networks. We already know what's going to happen. I mean, this story's already been written. Um, I'm not going to go into the blow-by-blow detail here. It's all available, as I said, on X, on Qualys' excellent vulnerability disclosure. Uh, but here's how they introduced their research. They said, We recently audited central parts of the Exum mail server and discovered 21 vulnerabilities, 11 local and 10 remote. Unless otherwise noted, all versions of XM are affected since at least the beginning of its Git history in 2004. We have not tried to exploit all of these vulnerabilities, but we successfully exploited four local privilege escalations and three remote code executions. They have four bullet points. We will not publish our exploits for now. Instead, we encourage other security researchers to write and publish their own exploits. Oh, yeah. What could could possibly go wrong with that? They said, this advisory contains sufficient information, and indeed it does, to develop reliable exploits for these vulnerabilities. In fact, we believe that better exploitation methods exist. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) why not try some? They said, we hope that more security researchers will look into Exum's code and report their findings. Indeed, we discovered several of these vulnerabilities while working on our own exploits. <laughs> oh, Jesus, they're cascading. And finally, they said, we will answer to the best of our abilities any questions regarding these vulnerabilities and exploits on the public OSS hyphen security list. And then there's a link in the, show, in the notes. And they said, last minute note, as explained in the timeline, We developed a minimal set of patches for these vulnerabilities. For reference and comparison, it is attached to this advisory and is also available at, and then we have the link. So, in their disclosure, uh, as opposed to the vulnerability disclosure, in their announcement, basically, they wrote, Once exploited, 
they could modify sensitive email settings on the email servers, allow adversaries to create new accounts on the target mail servers. Um, And it's worth noting that Exum already has a history of trouble. Uh, Back in June of 2019, Microsoft warned of an active Linux worm targeting an earlier Exum remote code execution bug. And a month later, attackers started exploiting vulnerable Exum servers to install the WatchBog BOG Linux Trojan. Uh, which, as a consequence, added them into a Monero crypto mining botnet. We know that's not going to happen now. Now what's going to happen is ransomware. Uh, And the U.S. NSA, the National Security Agency, said last May of 2020, a year ago, that the sandworm Russian military hackers have been exploiting that same critical XM remote code execution since at least August of 2019. In other words, we already have evidence of an older remote code execution vulnerability known, published, and patched years before still being executed, still being leveraged by bad guys a year later. Now, Qualys has just dropped another goodie bag of these of these vulnerabilities in in the email servers running sixty percent of the internet's uh, domains, you know, into the public discourse. Of course, the Microsoft Exchange server catastrophe showed us just how vulnerable an exploitable email server can be. Now, the whole world knows that Exum. The most widely deployed email server can now be remotely exploited. As Qualys themselves wrote, this advisory contains sufficient information to develop reliable exploits for these vulnerabilities. In fact, we believe that better exploitation methods exist. Oh, joy. Um, And if we thought that updating and cleaning up the big mess created by Exchange Server was a problem, just try doing that with the Internet's Exum servers, especially all those that are embedded into firmware-based appliances and long-forgotten dusty closets. Yes, we'll be talking about this, I'm afraid, (laughs) in coming months. Dusty closets are full of bad stuff, I tell you. Leo... (laughs) It's not just dust bunnies. It's yeah, yeah. it's bad guys. And they're going to use this to get into net corporate networks and to launch more ransomware. Because now botnets are considered quaint, uh, as is Monero mining. Why do that when you can, you know, extort millions of dollars yeah, from yeah. a juicy target? Well, we're going to wow. talk about that in a little bit, too. Yeah, We are. Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to do a break here? Is that your, Here comes my water. Is that yep. your water break time? <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you. You're, of course, always, Steve. We we got to do them anyway, whether you want me to or not. But this one I'm happy to do because this is a product I've been using now for some time, and I'm really happy with. Uh, it's my new password manager, and it's called Bitwarden. I've always said that if you're going to use security software, actually, in a way, this XM story is a, is a good example of that. Uh, you should use open source because then people are looking at it 
And if there are flaws, it can be exposed. I just, I prefer to use open source for crypto. I prefer to use open source for password managers, and that's Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work. There are other open source password managers, but none so flexible. One of the biggest challenges for businesses, of course, is to to get <laughs> to get your staff to follow best practices when it comes to password management. But they love Bitwarden. By giving your employees Bitwarden, they can securely store credentials spanning across personal and business worlds. And the thing is, Bitwarden works. It's easy to use, and it works everywhere you are. Every Bitwarden account, whether it's business or personal, begins with the creation of a personal vault that you put your stuff in. Uh, But when you use Bitwarden for business, when an individual who perhaps is already, I hope, is already using Bitwarden joins the team... They can be then assigned to the organizational vault. So that way, they have access to their own stuff. They have access to the business stuff. Never the twain shall meet. But they have shared credentials. Quicker access means quicker productivity. It also means for many employees who are already using Bitwarden, no disruption of the way they already work. It's just it's an additional feature. They get a, another vault, the organizational vault, in addition to their personal vault. Bitwarden is super customizable. You can turn on or off features using enterprise policies to adapt to your business needs, generate unique and secure passwords for every site your employees access, ensure that a password is not used more than once. You can actually say, no, that password has been used. This minimizes the risk of using passwords in several places at once, but Bitwarden can also minimize the risk of using weak and vulnerable passwords by generating good, long, strong passwords. You can get, as the enterprise can customize and set password requirements and administrative policies that really encourage your employees to do the right thing. Practice good password hygiene. And, of course, enterprise-grade security. Bitwarden conducts regular, independent, third-party security audits so you know, I mean, it's open source and it's fully audited. You know it it works. It's compatible with everything you need to be compatible with in your business. And then some, Privacy Shield, HIPAA, GDPR, CCPA, the California Privacy Act, SOC 2 and SOC 3 security standards, all compliant. If you want to use SSO, we were talking about single sign-on earlier, you can update your existing systems with Bitwarden using SSO authentication. You can also use directory services, and of course, Bitwarden has its own powerful APIs. Get up and running fast in the Bitwarden cloud, or, and another thing I love about Bitwarden, you can self-host. In fact, because it's open source, there's a variety of choices for self-hosting. This is just awesome. One of the things that people at Bitwarden told me when I talked to them is, and it's important for you to know, the free tier, because they're an open source product, the free tier is always going to be free. It is not part of some grander strategy to get you to the paying tier. That's not their plan. That's not their desire. That's not how it's set up. It's open source. That means the free tier will always be free. And I know that's, for some of you, a very important point. Uh, but I, I pay the 10 bucks for me personally, 10 bucks a year for the professional version because I want to support them. It's 10 bucks is nothing. Using the Bitwarden Vault Health Reports, you'll get actionable insights to exposed, reused, weak, or potentially compromised passwords. It's pwned to own plus, as well as identify any items in your vault with inactive 2FA. How about that? You you could use 2FA, but you're not. How about that? That's awesome. 
Mitigate the likelihood of successful phishing attacks by storing passwords and other sensitive information in an end-to-end encrypted vault with Bitwarden. I put everything in there. It's, it is my, my, my secure enclave for all my most important data, the stuff I want to keep to myself. Bitwarden. It's an open source password manager trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide for secure password storage and sharing. It's the one I recommend at this point. It's the only one I recommend. Uh, it's just great. I use it on Android. I use it on iOS. I use it on Linux. There's a command line version on Linux. I use it on Mac and Windows, of course. Get the password manager that offers a robust, cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Free trial of the Teams or Enterprise plan is available at bitwarden.com slash twit. And, of course, there's always a free tier for individuals. Free across all devices as an individual user, right? That's pretty nice. If you're thinking about changing, I highly recommend Bitwarden. And if family and friends or your company come to you and say, hey, what do you recommend? Do yourself a favor. Do them a favor. Do me a favor. Recommend Bitwarden. And tell them to go to bitwarden.com slash twit. Bitwarden.com slash twit. Let me thank Bitwarden so much for their support and for making a great product, which I am extremely happy uh, to be using. Steve, let's go with some some, uh, extra stuff here. Come on. Indeed. Uh, Yeah. uh, We have a novel. uh, I'm so excited. Yeah. uh, When I I checked it out over on Amazon, I was told that I could have it for free as part of my Audible free trial. So uh, when the next talk... You're going to listen to it? No, no, no. I'm oh. not. But I know that many... I just wanted to mention that... It, that I thought you were going to go audible. I was, I was going to mention gonna you fall could, off my ball. You could have somebody read it to you if you would like. Actually, and Andy uh, Weir uses really good, a really good reader. It's, it, yes. Lisa and I, I, I listened I have, to The Martian together driving to the on the road to Hana in Hawaii. Nice. We'll never forget it. It was like a life experience that we share that we will always remember. Really, really. Okay, well. so yeah. what we have for our listeners who don't yet know, I haven't said uh, yet. And yes. Andy Weir, who is famous for having written The Martian, has a new novel which the reviewers are just falling all over themselves for. It's called Project Hail Mary. Mm. Um, it's a solid five stars. I looked at the break to the demographic breakdown of stars and it's like 84% are fives and the balance are fours with only a couple threes. Uh, for example, Nick, uh, uh, who reviewed this on the fourth, this novel just came out a week ago. He's a verified purchaser. He said, I don't even remember pre-ordering this book it just showed up in my kindle app this morning he said so i decided to read the first chapter before starting work four hours later i can finally put the book down since i'm done now wow i don't like to i I don't like to read that way because it's 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 just like not not chewing and and it's like wait what happened (laughs) what happened where am i it is it is it is a 16 hour book so that's that's a good amount of reading in four days he, four hours yeah he he's he, he went fast he, yeah. so he he says the martian was a great story artemis that's another one that that andy weir wrote artemis he says was a great story this one is better than either of those 
Huh. If he says, if you like science fiction with actual wow. science, this is for you. If you like stories with interesting, well-developed characters, this also has that. If you want excitement and a thrilling plot, here you go. If you want romance and sex, well, there you're completely out of luck. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if that was the kind of book you wanted, I doubt you'd be reading this review anyway. <laughs> Speaking of why are you still reading this review, go read the book. It's way better than this. Uh, somebody else said Andy does it again. This He said a spiritual sequel to The Martian that had me grinning throughout the entire book, made my inner nerd squeal with delight on mm. many occasions, mm. has everything I ever <clears throat> wanted in a sci-fi book, just didn't realize it until now. Read it. That is all. Hmm. And I'll share one more. Another five out of five. I mean, they virtually all were. Uh, this one's subject was, stop reading this review. <laughs> Read Project Hail Mary. He said, a previous reviewer said, The Martian was a great story. Artemis was a great story. This one is better than either of those. Wrong. This one is much, all caps, oh boy. better than either of those. He said, instant classic. He said, if you mixed Asimov's, the gods themselves, and Heinlein's, citizen of the galaxy, and added in a few gallons of Clark and Niven, it would be like this. I'd write more, but I'm off to reread the novel. Oh, my goodness. I want to get this now. <laughs> It's actually, you know, I'm going to get Andy. We, I interviewed Andy Weir, of course, after Artemis. It's interesting because Artemis was the beginning of a new series for him, and he this book does not continue that. Maybe he's planning to down the road. So this is not a spoiler, and I have not read the book, but this is something about a team of three go off on some like distant mission to save the Earth, and. Only one guy is left to solve, like, like to, to figure this out. So, again, as I, as I said, that's not a spoiler. I've not read the book. I don't know anything about it. But, wow. I'm going to try to get Andy uh, and do a special uh, interview. Cause given, given that he apparently has really outdone himself. Yeah, we interviewed him after The Martian. I think I interviewed him again after Artemis. So, um, we should really get him for this. All right. We don't have the show cool. anymore, but maybe we'll, we'll put it in the club Twitter or something like that. Very cool. Very cool. I can't yeah. wait to read it. Sounds like a win for our listeners. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul uh, Babiak, he posted in the GRC.SecurityNow news group under the subject, One Possible Solution to QNAP Vulnerability. Actually, he found what I was maybe suggesting as a solution. A walkthrough of an installation of Open Media Vault for the QNAP hardware. I've got a YouTube link and a link to openmediavault.org. You can install non-QNAP firmware onto your QNAP um NAS in order to get something that, I mean, it could, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I was going to hedge my bets here and say, wait a minute, can I really assert that it's more secure? Yes, because it could not be less secure than what you're getting from QNAP. So, yes, 
Uh, thank you, Paul. And also, uh, John S. sent by DM. He said, uh, first hack that hits close to home, sitting in the ER of Scripps Health with my wife. This was on Sunday. He said, they were hacked a few weeks ago and are still doing all charts and orders via paper records. The process is taking about four to six hours longer than normal for doctors to get lab work back. Nurses are making notes on square sticky notepads. I'm an IT sysadmin and security guy, and obviously a listener to Security Now, and he DM'd me. He says, this upsets me to no end. Thought I'd share a few pictures for observations. And he did include some photos of, like, some some screens of computers that are down uh, at Scripps. So we, we talked about the, the Scripps health attack last week. And, you know, here he is. Uh, I also told him that I hoped everything was would was okay with where for whatever reason he was uh, in in Scripps ER with his wife but you know it really is having real world consequences you know these things do okay and uh, I just mentioned that I have nothing huge to report on the spin right front I am unglamorously working my way through the code line by line changing the sizes of the registers and the variables used to manage drives to accommodate to di- today's larger than 2.2 terabyte drives containing any partitioning and any file system um, and also since we'll be living with and using this code base after it's converted from 16-bit real-mode segmented code to 32-bit protected mode flat model uh, and also booting under UEFI and BIOS uh, and also to host native operation for USB and NVMe mass storage, I am taking some time to clean things up a bit while I'm there as I'm moving through it to get it a little bit more ready for its uh, future, which seems bright. Uh, you know, now that I have access to upper memory, which I have never had before, I'm able to move some of the things that were, that, well, so, some of the things that Spinrite had been cramming into lower memory up into upper memory to ease the pressure on the use of lower memory, which eliminates some jumping through hoops. So anyway, I'm I'm at work on it, and uh, I am, uh, you know, posting updates to the news group, and and when I have them, uh, new code to test, as I as I mentioned before, and that's all been going well. Okay, news from the dark side. Um, because this latest high-profile ransomware attack has been extensively covered by the popular press, I assume that our listeners already know that the largest fuel pipeline in the United States run by a company called Colonial Pipeline, and actually the pipeline is also called Colonial Pipeline, uh, it was shut down uh, late Friday when they were forced to terminate all of their network operations in an effort to contain a ransomware attack. And I assumed that there wasn't much more to know. But in doing my due diligence for the podcast, I discovered that was not the case. Uh, So Colonial Pipeline is keeping uh, rather quiet about specifics, likely following advice coming at them from many sides. But the FBI has confirmed that this was a ransomware attack conducted by DarkSide 
a new ransomware as a service group. And remember, we talked about ransomware as a service, how that's like the new way to do this. And, you know, what we're developing is essentially a ransomware economy uh, and sort of an ecosystem where we're getting specialization among the players that then form a chain. Uh, so there are, you know, what to do with the money specialists, you know, Bitcoin mixing and so forth. There are the software development specialists and there are the, you know, hack my hack into the system specialists. Uh, and they're actually they have a, a I think they called them access access agents or something. I saw that the other day. It's like, oh, goodness. Uh, anyway, um, these guys are new. They first appeared on the scene in August uh, last summer, 2020. So just, you know, to set the stage for anyone who may have been out hiking through the wilderness over the weekend and offline ever since, incredibly, Colonial Pipeline is responsible for transporting refined petroleum products, gasoline, between refineries located down on the Gulf Coast to markets throughout the southern and eastern U.S. When its pipeline is up and running, as it always is, it transports two and a half million barrels per day through the 5,500 miles of pipeline to provide an astonishing 45% of all fuel consumed by the East Coast. So when the East Coast's petrochemical fuel supply suddenly and unexpectedly drops by nearly half, markets are upset and states of emergency are declared as as has happened by the Biden administration for Washington, D.C. and the seven states that the pipeline runs through. Uh, this was t- this was temporarily done to lift restrictions on fuel transport by road in an endeavor to keep at least some fuel moving. But, you know, good luck with that. At 42 gallons per barrel, tanker trucks are not going to match a continuous flow of the 105 million gallons of refined fuel which normally flows through that pipeline every day the governor of, of the governor of virginia today just today tuesday declared their own state of emergency their declaration begins on this date may 11th 2021 i declare that a state of emergency exists in the commonwealth of virginia to prepare and coordinate our response to the voluntary shutdown of the colonial pipeline due to a cyber attack on its business systems informational technology infrastructure on may 7th if prolonged the pipeline closure will result in gasoline supply disruptions to various retailers throughout the commonwealth since the pipeline is the primary source of gasoline to many virginia retailers and yesterday north carolina declared a similar emergency and gas station pump rationing has been instituted there Okay, so now, you know, the the famous solar winds attack, as we all know, made the news in March loudly because it was labeled the most significant cyber attack ever. So, okay, woo, big headlines. And people could be upset by the idea of that, 
especially since the attacks were credited to Russia-linked cyber criminals. But the idea of that was the attack's only real effect on most people. This time, of course, this is an effective attack against critical American infrastructure, forcing declarations of emergency. Um, When you cause the shutdown of nearly half the supply of gasoline to a large and influential portion of the U.S., the problem is no longer theoretical or superficial. Um, Okay, so what about Dark Side? I found a copy of their extortion demand note. Uh, Actually, I found many of them over time because this has been on the cybersecurity industry's radar since, as I mentioned, last summer. Um, and I have, I have a, <laughs> I'm getting close to the screen so that I can read this. Maybe I could zoom in, although zooming in, it's so, it's so uh, fuzzy. It's fine print. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really help very much. So, but, so they said, welcome to dark side. Your computers and servers are encrypted. Backups are deleted. We use strong encryption algorithms so you cannot decrypt your data. But you can restore everything by purchasing a special program from us, Universal oh. Decryptor. <laughs> How thoughtful. Yeah, isn't that nice? They they make that available, Leo, for the low, low price of several million dollars. Anyway, they said this program will restore all your network. Follow our instructions below and you will recover all your data. And then they said, what guarantees? We value our reputation. (laughs) If we do not do our work and liabilities, nobody will pay us. This is not in our interests. All our decryption software is perfectly tested and will decrypt your data. We will also provide support in case of problems. We guarantee to decrypt one file for free... Go to the site and contact us. Then they say how to get access on website. Using a Tor browser, download and install Tor browser from this site. And they point you to torproject.org. Open our website and then they give us a an onion uh uh, domain http <laughs> okay no s http colon slash slash dark side and it's just s i d and then f q z q u h t k two dot onion slash and then a big crypto looking thing uh looks like base sixty four all caps then they said when you open our website put the following data in the input form and then they give a a key. Then they said, danger, three exclamation points on either side. Do not modify or try to recover any files yourself. We will not be able to restore them. And then danger. So, (laughs) okay, that's these guys. Uh, In addition to the ransom note, victims of a dark side attack receive an information pack informing them that their computers and servers are encrypted. The info pack lists all of the types of data that were stolen and provides the URL of a personal leak page where the data is already loaded, waiting to be automatically published. Should the company or organization being extorted from choose not to pay up before the deadline expires. 
Darkside also tells victims it will provide proof of the data it has obtained and is prepared to delete all of it from their own storage once payment has been received. I did also see the, although this may have been earlier, I didn't see it in this particular attack, the, you know, the doubling of the ransom demand in in equivalent dollars if negotiation uh, is concluded by a certain date. Now, what's weird about these people is they appear to imagine that they're running a business more than a crime ring. Uh, when they yeah, release, act a like new- that, don't they? It's like, yeah, they yeah. really do. We're a serious well, enterprise, don't? Uh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and w- when they released a new version of their software two months ago, which could encrypt data faster than before, <laughs> they issued they issued a press release now twenty percent faster. <laughs> 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 yes, we'll, we'll mangle and tangle your network Jeez. in half the time oh as previously. God. They inv- they invited journalists to interview them. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. And their, web- their website on the dark web lists all the companies they have attacked Ugh. and hacked and what was stolen from them. Uh, and, get this, Leo, they have an ethics page. Oh, listing which types of organizations they will not attack. They've stated that they will not attack hospitals, hospices, schools, universities, nonprofit organizations, or government agencies. Uh, And I suppose after this, what they've just stepped in, they'll be adding critical infrastructure to that Uh, list. uh, (laughs) I have to figure SEAL Team 6 is about to jump in their window i, I, I think this is not going to go well this is i i, I exactly so you know uh that's that, so that anyway that's something different about these guys uh you know they said they intend to cause no harm they just want money on the website they wrote our goal is to make money and not create problems for society we do not participate in geopolitics, do not need to tie us with a defined government, and look for our motives, unquote. <laughs> and in this case, they realize they have probably painted a huge bullseye on themselves. They indicated that they had not been aware that Colonial Pipeline <clears throat> was being targeted <clears throat> Excuse me, by one of their affiliates. They wrote, from today, we introduce moderation. <laughs> a little late, but okay. We introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social circumstances, I'm sorry, social consequences in the future, unquote. So we know that they use the Salsa 20 symmetric cipher uh, with a custom matrix. And actually, switching to that would have been responsible for the speed increase because it's very quick. And RSA 1024 for their public key operations. So from a tech standpoint, their crypto appears to be well designed. And that's been the consensus of, of the security industry since they appeared back last August. Uh, their ransoms have generally ranged from 200,000 to 2 million. So not, you know, nutty 50 million uh, requests. Uh, you know, and, you know, traditionally, much of this podcast 
is focused upon developing an understanding of just exactly how porous most of our network and our, well, our, our, our computer and network security is today. We look at the details and, and we attempt to determine why these problems happen and what might be done to prevent such trouble in the future. Um, and unfortunately, we've reached the conclusion that we're not ready for the world. You know, most, if not all, of our existing IT infrastructure is not ready to stand up to determined attack. Look what just happened with Exim. This is going to be a catastrophe. Um, and it's a sad fact that, you know, we have to somehow uh, deal with uh, much more focus time and attention is going to have to be put in to 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 the security side of our technology it's going to burn a bunch of time effort and money uh you know just to prepare but there's just no way around it, it it's expensive it's a it's a waste of resources or consumption of those but but it has to happen. Well, that's what uh, so we anyway. talked about last week with this governmental uh, task force. Right. Right? Uh, the timing is interesting because, uh, of course, isn't that then weird? there's a massive infrastructure attack shortly yep. after that. Yep. But we clearly have to do something. This is, this is you know, this has got out of hand. And, and, you know, it's only a matter of time before something really serious gets hacked. Well, yes, and I had that same thought. You know, we've talked about how bad as COVID-19 has been there are previous viruses like the the what the Spanish flu of 1812 or whatever it was that uh, that were actually if that one had happened today the consequences would have been far worse my point is we we get wake-up calls uh, you know remember the old expression fool me once shame on me wait no Wait, <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool, fool me, me twice. twice, shame on me. Fool me three um, times, George Bush. No, no, that's so, something else. <laughs> so, you know, we like having the lights on. Lights are handy. Uh, and, you know, having power for refrigeration and all the things that we use electricity for now. Uh, it's, it's you know, whenever we have a, a brief outage of, of our electric supply, often scheduled by our, lo- by our local supplier, you know, you walk around flipping switches on rooms when you walk into them and think, oh, shoot, I forgot. We don't have any power. Um, uh, we really, really, really are vulnerable. And, and so, again, you know, this is inconvenient. But and, and I won't say in any way am I glad for this. I'm I'm certainly not. Except, as I said, the it, the solar winds attack was arguably ooh bad headlines, you know, bad Russians. But now we don't have gas on the eastern seaboard, so uh, you good. couldn't get you yeah. couldn't get a better wake up call. Yeah. You couldn't get a, a better you know a, de- a declaration of emergency by by the administration to allow for more tanker trucks to run north and south good luck that's 105 million gallons a day that that monster wow. pipeline and and leo we've also talked about a monoculture how about a mono pipeline that just you know this whole you know quietly in the background everything is getting consolidated so we end up with you know many fewer 
you know, much less redundancy, and it, it becomes much more critical that you know the the lack of redundancy becomes protected. Huh. Uh, apparently, it, it blew up in 2016 and was shut down for two weeks. So, it's not the first time this pipeline has has failed. Uh, it, it just does seem like it's a very very vulnerable. It's fragile. Setup. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, boy, it's just, uh, it feels like we're hanging by a thread at all times. I'll be honest with you. Modern civilization is so interdependent and so yep. uh, unredundant <laughs> that, uh, that's why the internet is such a miracle. It's, you know, it's designed to survive catastrophe, but apparently nothing else is. <laughs> nothing that we hung on to it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, man. Scary. You know, and, and the Internet's dodged a few bullets. We talked about Dan and discovering the, the, the danger right, the that DNS, DNS yeah, was in. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, we, okay, so here's Exim. It's, I guarantee you, we'll, you know, how, how much did we have to talk about the Exchange server problem? Yeah, yeah. It's not over. Just nope. beginning. Uh, well, Steve, we've come to the end of this grim edition of security now <laughs> as always we thank you for elucidating these uh, difficult uh, topics and uh, giving us uh, at least some hope that something can be done about it steve gibson's at grc.com that's his website that's where you'll find of course Spinrite, the world's finest mass storage maintenance and recovery utility Boy, starting to roll off your tongue comes you know? just right off just like that <laughs> No longer just hard drives. Anything you store your data on, uh, you'll find it there. Uh, 6.0 is the current version. Work proceeds apace, as Steve mentioned, on 6.1. You can participate in that development. Of course, get a free copy of 6.1 if you buy 6.0 now. You really need it. While you're there, you can get a copy of this show, too. Steve has the only 16-kilobit audio version of this show, for good reason. He also, but if you're bandwidth impaired, you'll be glad. He also has uh, uh, transcripts written by an actual human being. Elaine Ferris does such a nice job with those. That's at grc.com. And, of course, as always, it's free. 64-kilobit uh, audio versions as well. We have audio and video at our website, twit.tv slash sn. So you can download it there. If you want to watch us do it live, it's every Tuesday uh, at about 1.30 p.m. Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 UTC. The live streams are at twit.tv slash live, audio and video. Uh, and if you're watching live, you should chat with us live at irc.twit.tv. This would be a good place for me to mention that we also have now uh, a new uh, feature of Twit. An ad-free version of all the shows, including this one, both audio and video, in our Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all the shows. Access to our special discourse, um, Discord, rather. We actually have a free discourse. The forums are at twit.community, but the Discord is for Club Twit members. Uh, and it's a great, it's turned out to be a really nice additional benefit. A great community, great place to hang, where conversations go on about all kinds of topics, including all of our shows. Uh, you also will get the Club Twit Plus feed, and uh, that's where special uh, editions of programs, stuff that falls on the cutting room floor, etc., will live. Uh, find out more about Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. Easy enough. Steve, I hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week. Will do, my friend. Ciao. You know what's fun? Android.
You know what's even more fun, though? All about Android. That's my show, Jason Howell, along with my co-hosts, Ron Richards, Florence Ion, and we welcome guests on each and every week from throughout the Android ecosystem, developers, Googlers, journalists, people who are all geeked out about the Android operating system. We tell you everything you need to know. Twit.tv slash AAA every Tuesday. We'll see you there. Security now.